I'm Stefan Sittig, and welcome to American Theatre Artists Online, where we talk with leading contemporary figures in American theatre. Before I introduce today's guest, I wanted to share a statement. The American Theatre Artists Online podcast stands in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. We protest and are outraged by the senseless murder of George Floyd by a white policeman, and we condemn all acts of systemic racism. In support of this movement, the rest of the artists interviewed for this podcast for the month of June will be African-American leaders and theater practitioners. We will listen and learn and be strong allies. And we pledge to continue to keep our program diverse and open to all. Artistic director Michael J. Bobbitt joined New Repertory Theater in the Boston area as an arts leader, director, choreographer, and playwright in 2019. Previously, he served as artistic director for Adventure Theater MTC in Maryland since 2007, where he transformed the organization into a respected theater training company in the DC area, as well as a nationally influential professional theater for young audiences. In his 20 plus year career in the theater, Bobbitt has commissioned new works by noted playwrights, transferred two shows to off-Broadway, built an academy, and earned dozens of Helen Hayes Award nominations, including eight wins. He has directed or choreographed at Arena Stage, Ford's Theater, the Shakespeare Theater Company, Olney Theater Center, Studio Theater, Woolly Mammoth Theater, Center Stage, Roundhouse Theater, the Kennedy Center, and the Washington National Opera. As a writer, his work was chosen for the New York City International Fringe Festival, and he has two plays published by Rodgers and Hammerstein Theatricals. He is one of a small group of African-American men who lead prominent regional theaters in the US, and a focus of his work has been to reach out to underserved populations and increase cultural diversity in theater. Hi, Michael. Hi, Steven Sedek. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Hello, all Stevens, uh, sicko fans and fans out there. <laughs> oh, I don't have that many. <laughs> Just a few stalkers. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but um, <laughs> thank you so much for, um, you know, for agreeing to do this, Michael. It's been wonderful uh, to be able to watch you and your career develop over the 20 years that, that we've uh, known each other. And I think it's great for our audiences to, to be able to hear from you. 20 years, my God, that, that was that long ago. And actually I'm pretty excited because I get to chat with the director of the show we worked on. It was Sideshow at Signature Theater, right? Oh, that's right, Joe Calarco. Did you, did you get yeah. to chat with him today? No, we are, oh. um, I am doing a, I am beta testing a script reading book club with my, uh, with some special guests at my theater. And he is uh, one of the guests doing, um, uh, talking about his script R&J, which is the show I saw right before I agreed to do um, Sideshow because I just wanted to check out the director first. And uh, I was fascinated by that play, but he's agreed to, um, to be a guest speaker on this, on this book club. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. So we'll have to talk more about that in a second. But, you know, you obviously are keeping busy during the, you know, how are you doing? I guess that would be with everything going on. It's been a crazy year. I just wanted to check in. Are you doing okay? Everything okay with dealing with COVID and and then everything else too that's going on? Yeah, I'm doing well. I've become a monster about self-care in the last five, six years. and, And I think that all of that work has allowed me to stay sort of sane and healthy and 
and to know when I've reached my limit, to take a step away, to take a nap, to go for a walk, to close the computer. Um, so I'm actually doing really well. I'm actually also fired up because I think that both COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter movement are propelling the work that I want to do in theater forward at a rate that is um, that is very exciting and very visceral. Oh, wow. Well, for those that are listening, you uh, are the artistic director of New Repertory Theater, which is outside of Boston, right? Yeah, it's a little town called Watertown. It's right next to Cambridge, mm-hmm. um, settled on the water. Um, it's a large Armenian population. Um, nice. And the theater is situated on this beautiful campus that used to be an old arsenal. Where they built heavy latino, um, artillery and, and, uh, and machines and stuff. Wow, that's great. Well, what a beautiful location. Um, and I hope you're having good weather there. We're having gorgeous weather here today. Uh, but um, so tell me more about what, um, so I, uh, for those that, that may not know about your, you know, your history and what you've been working on, you know, you've really transitioned. I think you're one of those people that I've been watching and, and your career has really transitioned very successfully from being a full-time performer, which is when we met each other, uh, to now being a, you know, artistic director of a theater in New England. And, and um, you know, that takes a transition, that takes some time. And how did you go about that? You know, where did you, how did you get from there to here, sort of in your own words? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, the arts always fascinated me from a very young age. Um, in, in grade school, the best classes were art and music and, um, and I, you know, I, I did. I like those much more than I like math um, and gym. <laughs> yes. Um, but I, but I right. But I stuck with those because they they just fascinated me. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was escape from the things that were happening at home, the difficulties at home, or mm. or the ability to use my creative mind and imagine something. Um, imagine something different about the materials I had or the music or the play and then see it come to life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was my thing. And I went through sort of three different career paths. I, I, I initially was uh, focusing on dance and then I, and then the other second best thing I did was, uh, was music. So I went to college on a trumpet scholarship. Yes. I remember uh, that. A, I remember yeah. you said, uh, Susquehanna university, right? Susquehanna, yeah, yes, in central right. Pennsylvania, yes. um, and I and I had a minor in creative writing, and mm-hmm. so the writing part was interesting to me. And then I went back to the dance world, um, and then I went to the musical theater world because for some reason that was the thing that encapsulated all the things I mm-hmm. like to do. Um, and I don't know what it was. I think it was uh, so. So I performed for about five years. Um, touring and doing regional theater in Summerstock, and and then went on tour. After I went on tour, I came back to DC and um, didn't know what to do. I was getting close to getting a lot of big Broadway shows, and and I thought, well, since I got a late start in my theater training, maybe I need to focus on acting and singing more, and then go back to New York and see if I can land some of these Broadway gigs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came back to DC and fell in love with the DC town. Uh, immediately started booking gigs. Um, but what I, the one thing I knew was that I loved the rehearsal process. Yeah. It was the process of, of watching the team put the show together and thinking about what they were thinking about. My ability to, to sort of see the whole show was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and once we got into performances, then I got a little bored. And I used, <laughs> to, get in, I used to get in trouble because I would 
change things and tweak uh-huh. things and, yeah. and adjust things. And, hmm. you know, that's not what you do. You, 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 no. you set the show and you do the same thing every night. Um, I didn't know. And then I started teaching on the side, teaching at Catholic University at Montgomery College and Howard and doing master classes at GW. And, um, and that fascinated me because that was about, again, about process. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some, at some point, um, when my ex and I adopted our baby, I, the idea of missing out on him at night and going to the theater and performing mm-hmm. was very sad for me. So I, I, I decided to stop performing and focus on doing other things like teaching and choreographing and directing and maybe even writing. It's funny. I think uh, a lot of people who are in theater who, who at some point want to take a bit of their life back uh, do that. Those of us that start with performing, I did the same. I was performing all the time and didn't have a life, right? Because it's, it's really hard to have a life as an actor. Uh, yeah, and yeah. so I, I totally hear that. That's exactly what happened to me as well. Yeah. So, um, and your son is Sang Bobbitt, right? I know from Facebook. I've never actually met him, which is... I know, it's so funny. Say. Everyone knows him. <laughs> yes, he's famous. He's famous on Facebook. He seems like such a great kid. Um, and, and I'm so happy to see that... that that you've gone the fatherhood route. Uh, I, I think, I can't think of, of, of a better person to do that. Even back then, I thought, you felt, you felt a bit like a father figure even to me because you were so nurturing when I, when I came on to the Sideshow uh, cast. Yeah, because I, w- I was like the dance captain, wasn't I? I think so. It was you and, and, and Mary Jane. And, um, and I remember you were just very like, and also this thing you talk about be- seeing the whole show, I saw that in you back then. Because you knew every detail of the show, not just the stuff that you were doing. You knew sort of all the little pieces, including the set changes, and the, there was a lot of them in that show uh, for the cast, and, and all the little changes of, of moods and things. And you really saw the whole picture back then. And I, and I remember looking at you and thinking, this guy's going to be frustrated just being an actor. Uh, he's going to have to do more. And, 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 that, and I was right. And so, so, you know, you're a dad, you're an artistic director. And, and so how did you get from DC? So sorry, I interrupted you, but you were, you were in the, the talking about moving from acting to, to choreography in DC, right? Yeah. Yeah. So just super quickly about that yeah. idea of seeing the whole show that came to real fruition when I was touring with Kiss of the Spider Woman, because mm. I covered 12 parts. I, I covered five singers, four dancers, and three principals. So I had no wow. choice but to see the whole show. Yeah. And even when I was performing, I wasn't necessarily in my body because <laughs> I couldn't keep track of it all. I was outside of my body watching myself in the other people's tracks. Mm. And so when I got to sort of share all those those things with with you because you were swinging several roles yes i felt like i felt like i had to take care of you because i know how it feels to oh. do that and you did very um, much and so yeah that experience as a swing definitely makes you think right <laughs> yeah yeah the um so the transition from um performance artistic director so i shifted to teaching and choreographing um and the whole time i was again fascinated by the process I started on the side, sneaking and learning about nonprofit management, taking whatever I can take, classes I can take, and workshops I can take, and reading books and such. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, and my, my very good friend who just texted me, actually, named Roberta Gaspari, who oh, was, yes. we love Roberta, love yes. her. I call her my second mom. Yeah. But she uh, is the director of the Smithsonian's Discovery Museum. Mm-hmm. And she brought me in as a performer and then started giving me leadership roles. In fact, um, mm-hmm. the, the biggest role I had at Smithsonian was I was sort of director of touring productions where I really got to learn how to produce. Mm. Um, 
And that fascinated me. And so I kept sort of thinking about that. I had a few people saying, you know, you should start a theater company. I'll support you. And, mm. and that just seemed like a lot of work. Mm. Um, but I, but I was intrigued by it. I was actually about a year away from launching something or another. Um, but what I did was I joined a couple of boards. And one of the boards I joined was Adventure Theaters Board. Uh-huh. Um, and they were in the process of, of starting a capital campaign. And part of their capital campaign was they wanted to transition their model from a volunteer-run community theater to a staff-run model. Mm-hmm. So as that capital campaign was ending, um, there were a couple of board members that thought that I would be a good person to help them with that. And so I put my bid in and uh, applied and got the job. And, and, and so is history. And this is adventure um, theater in it's Glen Echo, right? In Maryland. Yeah, Glen, Glen Echo, Maryland. Yeah. That was in 2007. I took that job on. Oh, wow. Okay. So that was the start of you being in the role of a leader in, of, of leading a whole theater, right? An, an artistic director. Was that the first time that you had stepped into that kind of role? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wow. think that when you're directing, especially directing young kids, you sort of learn leadership skills um, as, mm-hmm. a, as, as just a sort of a soft skill, I guess. Um, yes. But that job and that title um, demanded that I really learn theory and techniques and practices around leadership. And I always had this thing that if there was something I didn't know about it, I would obsess about it and learn about it. So if I didn't know about governance, I would join a governance committee of another board or read all these books on governance. If I didn't know fundraising, I would join the fundraising committee of another organization Mm -hmm. and and obsess about learning about fundraising. And, And so that, all of those skills kind of piled up after a number of years. And, and I, I'm happy. I mean, I think that, Adventure Theater was so great about giving me the opportunities to expand my skills and entrusting me with my both instinct and my thoughts about the field as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and through that process, we, um, we, you know, we transitioned from a company that was serving about 15,000 patrons to in our best years, over a hundred. Wow. Two, show, two shows transferred off Broadway. We commissioned 40 new works by some of the country's leading playwrights, and many of them are published and being done all over the country. Um, we the budget went from a little over four hundred thousand to my last year three million. Wow! Um, and then we we merged with Musical Theater Center, forming a, a huge um, academy. So um, when uh, I guess early two thousand, well, I guess throughout my whole time there, I was I was headhunted by other theater companies, but I just didn't want to leave and plus I had this kid um, right and so when we were when yeah when when the time came for him to finish high school and go off to college a lot of calls were coming in right then um, you had a little more freedom well yeah I mean I wasn't I loved adventure theater and I had many plans for what I wanted to do but most of the things I wanted to do I had accomplished I think what um, after 12 years it just seemed like some new energy needed to come in and um, some of the opportunities that I was getting to interview for larger organizations were very enticing. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, he's going off to college now. Let's, let's, let's think about another opportunity. Absolutely. Um, and I think that the amazing things that you accomplished at Adventure Theater, how you took um, that theater from what it was to what it ended up being, you know, by the time you left, you really left it in a good place and you left it in good hands. And I think that is such a great track record to have as your first uh, artistic director, you know, role, stewardship, and you were able to do all of that. And I think, 
I think I've always saw that in you, that there's an entrepreneurial spirit there. I actually thought that I was sure you had an MBA and you had majored in business. I, when I went to start looking at, at your resume, I'm like, of course he's a business. And I'm like, but you have a business eye. You have a business mind. Um, you think about the whole picture. And I think, and the fact that you're so curious to learn and you, you, you grab everything that you can to learn and find out more about about the business side of theater. I thought that was was really fascinating uh, to me to learn from you. Yeah, the curiosity of learning comes from a little bit of insecurity of having never finished degrees. You I know, see, and, yeah, it's and, interesting. I've seen that in other, other artistic directors I know who, who never really got a degree or got some of a degree or, or went partially, and then they really study a lot. And they sometimes know more than those of us that went and got a, a four-year Oh degree. my God, I have like a triple doctorate worth of training. But. Right, because all, <laughs> all the reading you've done, all the studying on your own time that, you, that you've put in, and also the experience that you're gaining. Now tell me a little bit more about these um, new works that I know that you, that you nurtured at, at Adventure Theater MTC. Um, there, I know of two that I'd like to talk about, and that's just my own personal bias. Um, Three Little Birds and Petite Rouge. Those are the, oh, wow. Those are the two that I like the best. Um, and they're the ones that appeal to me the most. But, you know, if you want to speak about others, go ahead. But I don't know if those necessarily were the two most successful ones for you in terms of business. But in terms of um, material, those are the ones that I always found appealing. Can you talk about either of those? Well, or, so, yeah, sure, sure. So, I mean, some of the playwrights we commissioned, Ken Ludwig, what, eight-time Tony nominee. Wow, yeah, and, he's impressive. Uh, Karen Zacharias, awesome. um, who had the most produced play in TYA, I think last year, Ella Enchanted. Wow. Um, so to, to clarify, we'll say that, yes, Petit, uh, so Petit Rouge was not something I commissioned. That was commissioned from um, the Imagination Stage. I did, however, um, direct the original production at Imagination Stage. That's why I saw you connected with. Okay, sorry. Right. Okay. And then and then Adventure Theater did produce a version of the play, but I did not, I did not commission that one. Okay. Um, the Bob Marley piece, though, um, Three Little three, Birds. Bob Marley, yeah, so the official title is Bob Marley's Three Little Birds. Yes. Um, that idea um, came from a board member who was connected somehow to Bob Marley's family hmm. and sent, sent me a note and said, you know, Sadella Marley has written a children's book. And I thought... Hmm. My initial thought was reggae and children's theater. I don't know how this is going to work. Um, but I checked out the book and the book was basically Sadella had her, um, I think she had someone illustrate her dad's, um, her dad's song, Three Little Birds. Mm -hmm. And I got online and did a little bit of research. And one of the things I found online was that music teachers really struggled with getting kids on the beat. They tried everything from classical music to rap to John Philip Sousa and all these different things. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that helped was reggae. Wow. Because it's that strong sort of one and three mm -hmm. um, that Bob Marley uses. And so I thought, wow, there is a connection mm -hmm. to, to it. So I did a whole bunch of like research on Bob Marley. And then I did a whole bunch of research on Jamaica Mm -hmm. um, and, and all the myths and the legends and the, and the, and the fun little stories. And I used Sadella's book as just a, and her father's song as a jumping off point because that is that song is a narrative song. Woke mm -hmm. up this morning, smiled at the rising sun, three little birds um, 
singing a song. So I, I you, and then the, the the concept is everything, little things, going to be all right. Mm. So I, that kind of was the show. Um, I initially went through and downloaded all of Bob Marley's songs, and then I took out any song that was political or um, or not appropriate for kids, right. and I was left with uh, with a nice nice fat list of Bob Marley songs. And I just used all the information they had, the information on uh, the song, some, some information came from the songs, some plot points came from the songs, um, some uh, plot points came from the, the study I did on Jamaica, and we created this really wonderful, what I call sort of modern day fairy tale. Mm. Um, the show did really well at Adventure Theater. It was, the, it was the first show that really, really diversified our audiences in. Everyone loved the show. Mm -hmm. um, the show. The show then transferred to the New Victory Theater on, on um, off Broadway on Forty Second Street, literally right across the street from Disney Theatricals. Yeah. Uh, and then the show went on tour, and now it's published by Rogers and Hammerstein Theatricals, which is a division of Concord the Concord Music, and it's getting produced all over the country. That's so great. you talked about success, and and so there's success in in terms of like how much money it made. But I think Three Little Birds is one of the most successful pieces because it, it's like this gift that continues to give. That's what I was going to say, the, the being able to leave something behind, right? That you've worked on a piece, you've put it together, you've created it, you've you brought it brought it to life. And now it has a life beyond, you know, it's the birds have flown out into the, you know, out of the nest, out into the world. So everyone can, anyone who wants to can 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 um, sign on to do this piece if they want at their theater. Yeah. And that's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's getting a lot of getting a lot of productions. It's oh, nice to see them. That's great. Well, and what a wonderful way to expose children that may not otherwise be exposed to reggae music, to Bob Marley, to a different approach. You know, I mean, I know as a kid, my dad really liked Bob Marley, so I listened to it. But I don't know how many, you know, Caucasian kids get a chance to listen to a lot of Bob Marley at home. You know, so that's oh, it's great, everywhere. I think yeah. there are more Caucasians that love him more than anything else. Than anyone else. Because yeah, it, well, and that's what was interesting is that that audiences that came and, and everywhere mm -hmm. I've seen it, it's it's such a diverse, it's really the tr truly what you want to think about as diversity. And, and one of the interesting demographics that we saw at the theater was that there were more dads in the audience than ever before. And, uh, and, and, and so it was, it was just really very, very cool project. And, you know, in my, in my life and my, my writing experiences, I, I believe that American theater, um, uh, you know, when a, when, a, when a play is about a marginalized uh, person, mm. a lot of American theater reduces the play to being about the thing that makes that person marginalized. Mm. And so I don't like to center my work on, on tr the trauma of these marginalized communities. Sure. I like to think about shows that are not, where race is a plot point, but it's not about the travesties of race. It's about the contributions of people of color or marginalized communities to our to our our society and so bob marley the great thing about it it really is about it's so steeped in culture but the whole thing is about everything's going to be all right just enjoy life yes exactly and you know what a wonderful message for today and these days that we're going through to be able to um, have a little bit of respite and to to just have a very positive outlook on life right which is sure and that's yep. that's part of the jamaican culture as well so what about um what so you've met I, we talked about three little birds you talked quickly about petit rouge but what are some of the other is there another uh player that you if you had to to list something that you worked on in terms of creating putting one of these new plays together what was some of the best better experiences that you had while you were at adventure um mtc um uh 
well, one of the one of the sort of um, it's a very richly rewarding piece, and and partly because I just didn't didn't understand how I got there. But <laughs> um, you know, one of the things I always did was look for popular titles um, because you know when you're running a children's theater, it's so hard because children's theater is so marginalized in the greater American theater world yeah. it's different in in other countries but yeah. in america it's still considered like oh that's just for the kids yeah. even though like last summer there were nine shows on broadway that were about there were four kids i was gonna say there's a lot of that on broadway now right yeah they making realize up, kids making are a big up, part like of the a audience third of the end yeah making right. up so much money and it's so, the future um, it's the if you don't build audiences when they're children when are you going to build the audience you got to do it well right past. and that's why it's done so much better in other i, okay. I shouldn't say so much better but that's why it's so much more important in other countries because people really 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 believe that if you want to have lifelong patrons and and artists you've got to get them when they're young so um so i was coming the internet and i popped garfield popped in my in my head and so i found an email i reached out to someone who represents garfield and i got an email back and apparently there was a garfield so, so, so Adventure Theater um, commissioned a musical called Garfield, the musical with Catitude. <laughs> um, but I reached out to their representative and we had a good conversation. And he said that that, that Jim Davis had written a, a play that was supposed to tour to those large um, sports arenas. So the, those Verizon centers, you've seen those shows, yeah. Lose Clues and Door of the Explorer. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that show was on hold. So he really wasn't in a position to talk about a new play but typically when i get at least some interest i reach out to those people every six months and i pester them mm-hmm. finally after five years of reaching out they were willing to entertain a conversation so we had a conversation uh, at one point there was a, a tony nominated playwright that was interested in it but it didn't work out mm-hmm. um so i went back to them and said i'd love to look at the script you had written to see if there's a way to do it in our space so so Jim Davis sent me the script. It was I remember getting the email from Jim Davis going, "Oh my God, it's Jim Davis, the guy who like wrote Garfield." I know, right? That's um, amazing. And, and I read it, and it, and to be frank, and I and, I, and, and Jim will probably admit, uh, uh, agree to this, but it wasn't very good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was the first draft. <laughs> about a month, yeah. Um, but about a month went by, and Jim reached out and said, "You know, I went." I, I went out on a limb and I gave him the script and I haven't heard from you in a month. And so I'm a little upset. So I wrote him back and said, well, it's hard to think about giving notes to Jim Davis. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and he said, well, I'm a big boy. Just give me notes. And so I said, I, I don't think it works, but here's some things we can do to adjust it. And so he said, all right, so you go ahead and try to make an adjustment. And typically what I do with living playwrights is I, um, I will send them a synopsis before I start writing the script, because I want to, want to get them get them to buy into the synopsis. So he bought into it, and then he said, "You know what, Jill and I, Jill, his wife and I, were chatting, and we just don't think that what you're doing is going to work. So why don't you just start all over and come up with a whole new Garfield play?" And I was like, "What? What? What?" So I did. I, I spent about another month and a half, and he and I went back and forth, and we came up with a whole new idea, um, hmm. and it was terrific. And I remember, like, in my first synopsis, I had all these things that I wanted Odie to do. He was going to be, he was at one point, he was going to represent Garfield's lawyer, and, and he was going to have a tap dance where he was tapping dance, tap dancing around the issues. And <laughs> Jim, Jim sent me a note and said, Odie doesn't speak human. And I was like, what? Wait a second. Uh. 
Snoopy and Charlie Brown sings and dances. And, yeah. and he said, he said, we don't care. He doesn't speak human. So then I had to write a whole role for an actor to not speak human. Mm. So we wrote, we wrote this play. We went back and forth on some notes. Typically I got scripts that had his notes in blue and Joe's notes in reds. And sometimes they were in contradiction. Um, but it was just a really loving experience. And even when we disagreed, I said, I'd love to just hear it first before we, we change it. Mm-hmm. He was totally open. He couldn't make the actual performance, but he came to see a design run. And at mm-hmm. one point he was laughing so hysterically mm-hmm. that water was running down his face. Oh, and so good. it just became this wonderful project. And so that was a really rewarding experience. Um, so putting that together, it's interesting you tell the story of the collaboration. So, you know, it is sometimes hard when you're collaborating with someone like Jim Davis or you're collaborating with someone like Stephen Schwartz, who I know you also collaborated with on a, a, the Stephen Schwartz project at Metro Stage. I remember that one. Um, it's hard sometimes, right, to collaborate with the people that are our idols or someone that we think is, you know, an, an accomplished writer, even if we don't, you know, we may not be a fan particularly of their work, but they're an accomplished writer. Um, but the fact that he gave you such a space to, to, you know what, come up with your own, your own draft, you know, I thought that was, that's great that he was able to give you that space, right? Not, not all Yeah, I mean, I, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. Even the Steven Schwartz collaboration, he, he basically said, do what you want. So It's amazing if you uh, really, and, and that's the thing, if you ask, which I think you are, I've always felt from you to be, you know, you're upfront, you're direct, you're honest in a polite way. And, you know, if you're scared to ask, then nothing comes of it. But if, you, if, you, if you're willing to say, listen, you know, this doesn't work to someone like that, it's hard to do. It takes, it takes a certain poise to be able to do that. So I think you get the best results that way. And obviously your, your collaboration, it sounds like, with, on Garfield was, was a lot of fun. And that was another one that was published, right, by Rodgers and Hammerstein? Yeah, they have two pieces. Um, and and uh, it's, it's kind of nice to have, to have, I mean, like, I've grown up with the Rodgers and Hammerstein catalog of sure. songs so to know that my catalog is in the same catalog as oklahoma and right annie it's it's so bizarre but it's it's a nice it's a nice privilege to have it must feel those rewarding little, yeah yeah those little checks that come in are cute too <laughs> i was gonna say that part doesn't, <laughs> doesn't hurt either yeah absolutely well that's great i mean it's it's wonderful to hear these stories and you know i think that must be must felt so rewarding to to be able to be in a position where you're creating new works where you know now you know it sounds like you went from being the performer to being someone on the other side of the creative table as a choreographer director then an artistic director where you have an ability not only to shape a theater uh company but also to start creating new works and to be involved in new creation of theater that's got to be that's got to feel good michael it it really does i mean i i think about my life and there are times where i go how did i get here (laughs) you know it's just one of those sort of -of out-of-body experiences where you're like i'm I'm on the phone with like this person and and how did i get here so um i do i do i'm really very 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 uh, blessed and i'm glad that people um pay attention and see me as someone that they can they can collaborate with so absolutely and you know that doesn't happen if you're just sitting at home and you're not trying and you're not reaching out and you're not um doing the things you need to do to make the connections and and continue the energy driving the energy forward and that's something that i think you do very very well so um you were at adventure theater for a while right and you really grew it um as we talked about um, during that period, and then what was the next thing that happened? How did the how did the new rep opportunity pop up, and 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 how was that choice to be able to go over there? And how was that? Must have been an easy decision. 
No, it totally wasn't because my my life in D.C., my coming, well, I was born and raised in D.C., went away, of course, to school and, and to, for, for theater, came back in 96, and that's where I sort of planted roots, and so my family was there, and all my friends and all my colleagues, and, um, you know, I have, I think in the last five, six years, I have just decided that vulnerability is the key to happiness, and if you don't sort of, sort of embrace it and go with it, then you will not achieve the kind of happiness that you want. But, um, you know, Vision Theater was doing really well and we were uh, in the process of building building and restructuring new academy initiatives. Um, but I just realized that I, I, looked back at a, I looked back at a document that I created when I first got there that had bullet points about all the things I wanted to do. And I did everything. I did everything I wanted to do except build them a new building. Mm-hmm. And um, and also, I was getting all these headhunting calls from some major, major, major lord theaters all over the country, and making sure. it to three and three and four rounds. And so, mm-hmm. um, but when I when when I got a, when I got the call from New Rep about applying, I looked at what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I looked at where they were situated, a major city, and there was a lot mm-hmm. of race equity. Um, uh, ideals in their vision statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I had some conversations, it aligned with all the things I wanted to do, and it was also small enough that uh, if I messed it up, <laughs> it wasn't going to be too damaging for them. Because some of the some of the um, some of the calls that I got from theaters were major theaters, um, and so actually when I when I said yes to New Rep, I actually had two other offers. One was a, a major, massive, large multi-million dollar theater and one was a little bit larger but in a smaller rural town mm-hmm. and i think new rep new rep just felt it, you know it tugged at my heartstrings and it just felt like the right place to, to to go so i chose new rep and so what is your which which is great and i mean i think you have to go where your heart is right and i think you have to go you talked a little bit earlier well uh, just a few minutes ago about vulnerability tell me more about that what do you mean you said sometimes in life and you have to you have to have some vulnerability I, I think it's great i agree but what what do you mean taking risks no i i think i think um Vulnerability is the key, like I said, the key to happiness. And I steal it from Brene Brown, who I'm obsessed with. If you haven't listened to Brene Brown's podcasts and YouTube clips, please, please do it. It'll change your life. Oh, but um, but I think that humans humans avoid fear and the pain of fear at all costs. Mm. And so a lot of times those of us that may be suffering from mental illness or or addictions or or anxiety. Part of that is that that often we take the things that have been traumatic or, or difficult in our lives and we put it in a box and we, we, we try to live outside of that box thinking that whatever's in the box is not going to hurt me because if I don't pay attention to it, it's not going to hurt me. Right. And you live outside the box. But Brene Brown says that actually you are living in the box and all those things you're shoving in the box still have a lot of control over you. Mm-hmm. And in order, for to, in order to heal from those things and to move forward, you have to be vulnerable enough to experience them again and eradicate them and so in my general life when i am struggling with difficult conversations or difficult choices i typically go towards the thing that is difficult the thing that is scary and i step into it Uh, and every single time i've done that uh, i mean like separating from my ex uh, which after 19 years was very difficult moving to boston was very very difficult um 
but when I embrace those things, great things come out of it. And so I, 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 I challenge people to embrace vulnerability. It is, you cannot be happy if you don't get it out of your body and your system. If you're holding pain and, and anxiety inside, there is no way you can escape that. You have to get it out. You have to get it out and get help or talk to confidants or just get it out of your system. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thanks for elaborating on that because I, I heard you say it and I went, oh, that sounds interesting. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that shows in your work in that you're willing to take risks and you're willing to say, okay, that may not be super comfortable right now, but I'm going to try it or I'm going to go there or I'm going to explore that that area. Um, so what is, so now you're you're the artistic director at New Rep. Um, what is the mission of New Rep and what are some of the goals that you have uh, for the theater and, and what would you like to achieve? And, and you know, and then we'll, later we'll talk a bit about how you, how the theater is adapting to, you know, because, you know, you started last year, right? Last season? Not season? Either, yeah, sort of. I mean, I started, I started officially in August, but I was onboarding from May to, to August. Okay, but this was your first season. This I'm in season. month 10. Yeah, okay. So really, your first season, and here we go, the COVID comes in right so, <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. so talking about talk about being vulnerable and taking risks but let's before we jump into the COVID I want to talk a bit about what is the mission of New Rep and what is your some of your goals or ideas of what you want to do let's put COVID or maybe you can't put COVID aside maybe that's part of it uh, but but how, how is all of that coming together in this new environment that you're in now yeah so the mission is to produce plays that speak to the vital issues of our time mm -hmm. and I think that it, it's 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 uh, my issue with it is it's a little vague and I, I don't know how to qualify our and time mm. you know it's time to it's time today it's time the history of mankind who is the hour in that statement there is something um uh, provocative about it and i think that uh, i was just on another um conversation and i think that missions of organizations have to change when the world needs you to do something different yeah. i think the world is requiring arts organizations to do something really different right now and so really? i think the staff and the board and i need to reinvestigate that mission to figure out what where the world needs us yeah. um so and then as far as sort of what i want to do uh, i think there's a transition period when most people come into the organizations um and New Rep, New Rep had some financial struggles, and so this year has been really about um, um, cleaning up financials, turning around an organization, fixing operations, fixing governance, uh, and then next year is focusing primarily on um, fundraising, and then really digging into our race equity work. Mm. I only I only say that because you know just getting used to living here, building a network, getting to know the community. Um, is a lot of work. And so sure. there, there hasn't been any time to really fine tune where I want to take the, sh take the company from a vision perspective. Like I can talk about what I want um, the audiences to look like, what, how, how, how much money I think we should operate on. I can talk about all those things, but, but I'm still, still, I have vision impulses, but I don't know yet what the vision is. Mm, sure. Um, and it's and something that takes time to, to put together. It's not something you can just blurred out. I mean, you do have to do what you're doing, which is the marinate in it a little bit and live in it. Yeah, yeah. And there's still some more conversations to have, but but I'm but I'm excited about what's sort of bubbling up as as the vision impulse. And I and I think I can enroll people onto that idea. Yeah. Um, a lot of what I've been doing here in Boston too is 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 bringing the community together. I'm so gregarious and I believe in community so much that I have been 
you know, once a month having gatherings with other artistic directors at my home. Mm -hmm. We were in the process of planning an artistic director retreat where we all got together for a day or two to just iron out and, and, hash, and, and hash out a vision for what we think the, the Boston theater scene could look like. Nice. Um, now during the crisis, we have been focused, we've been meeting via Zoom every couple of weeks. Um, so th those conversations also fit into sort of where I want to take the company. Um, and I also wanted to come to a company where I could not only work for the company, but also do something to affect the greater community. And I think New Rep is really allowing me to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm excited. I mean, I think there's something around diverse voices and, and, and getting us to a place where truly all people feel not only safe but affirmed in mm -hmm. a space yeah um and that everyone true you know divert the thing about diversity is that when people think about diversity think about like including marginalized people or only having marginalized people but that's you know like black theater do the black show for the black people right. that's not diversity that's not no. diversity that's no, that's it's yeah, is having multiple minds in the room you're experiencing moving. the same. It, yeah, yeah. So you're you're putting people in boxes in a way because if only the black theaters are doing black pieces and the white theaters are not do, touching anything to do with black people and because they're scared or, or whatever, that's not helping anyone. Yeah, there's something about being a civic center using theater as an art form that mm -hmm. intrigues me about new rep, the possibility. Yeah. And so that that's kind of the jumping off point. And I think the the race equity conversation is, is, is integral to all of the things that we are doing and will do. And what I'm hoping is that everyone will support this effort because uh, because I, I have lots of problems with the way American nonprofit theater functions mm. and the financial systems that we have in place that I think sure. erode our, our, our ability to be as inclusive and accessible as we have been talking about. You know, we've been yeah. pontificating about this for years, and yet we still stick with the same budget models and subscription models and season planning models that all exist to renew the status quo. And so how can you become more inclusive if you're using the same financial models? And I was talking to Carolyn Griffin last week on my, my podcast, you know, at Metro Stage, and um, we were talking a bit about the subscriber model and how that's changing. And, and this idea that, you know, somehow theaters are beholden to this monolithic group of people, the, the quote unquote subscribers, right? For many, many years, for those of us in the theater, we always heard that name, you know, the subscribers, and it was kind of scary. Who are these people, you know, right? And, and, and as an actor, even I'd be like, oh, the subscribers, oh, you know. So now I feel like theater has really changed, right? There's the idea of a subscription is still there, but people really want more flexibility. Younger people, younger patrons don't always get a subscription, right? They like to have the flexibility of coming to whatever shows of the season they want, right? And yeah, yeah. But beyond the sort of like flexibility, the, the, so, so let me talk about it financially. Sure. Like it does, it doesn't work from a financial model. One mm -hmm. is that, um, Oftentimes, unless you're a theater company that really has a high demand and mm -hmm. you can jack up your subscription prices because you're, you're, you're telling your subscribers, if you want a seat, you need to pay more money to get it. So mm -hmm. you're insuring your seat. Yeah. Most of us don't have that benefit. So most of us are offering discounts to our subscribers to incentivize them to renew. Mm -hmm. But those subscribers usually can't afford to pay full price. So mm -hmm. why are we giving them discounts? And then they pick the best seats in the house. Mm -hmm. So there's a race there's a race thing about that because oh, 
you know, are you are you relegating brown and black people and poor people to the back and the sides or the lesser than seats? If you think about it, who can afford to um, pay for their tickets a year and a half in advance? Up front, right, for five then, shows right. or four shows. Yeah, back. and then you talk about inclusivity. So when they come to the theater, you stand in front of them and you say, thank you, subscribers. We love you more than our non-subscribers. <laughs> so you know what I mean? So we do no, that no, all the time. The model, the whole and model then, is, is antiquated. It, and I'm spending, I'm spending all the money that I've earned from those subscriptions now for something I'm supposed to deliver next year. Right. God forbid there is a fire or a strike or a freaking pandemic, Stefan. Yes. We have spent all their money. Sure. And so that model is not broken. And then, like, I get six months to market one show and 18 months to market another show. That doesn't make any sense. Mm. And then if you think about it, if I have a hit show... I maybe can get one, possibly two week extension in there, but I can't keep running it until I see that the sales are dropping because I have the next show coming in and subscribers have bought tickets to it. And on the flip side, if I have a flop, I can't close it early because subscribers bought tickets in the fifth week. So Yeah, the regional theater model that follows sort of what you were just explaining to me is still, uh, it's a mystery to me why American theater still follows that model despite other countries you were talking about. You know, my mother's from Uruguay and and I grew up in Brazil. I remember in Brazil, if there was a hit in one of these theaters, they would stop everything and just keep going with the hit until enough people got to see it that needed to see it. And that, you know, instead of producing a whole other show, this idea of a season of plays is very American and it's very sort of regional theatery. You know, I get it. But, you know, I think the model needs to change. And I think I'm hoping that you're one of the people that's willing to look at that and to get yeah, I'm hoping. I'm, I'm hoping. I'm, I'm, what, I've, what I've come to realize is that, that theater artists are the best creators in the world. We have such imagination, imagination mm-hmm. and, 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 and specifically for musical theater, because we are, we are putting all the art forms together, creating these worlds. But maybe our shortfall is that we don't have enough business savvy. Yes. And maybe what we need to do is really collaborate with economists and futurists and MBAs and entrepreneurs and social Absolutely. scientists to kind of help us reimagine mm-hmm. some of these models. And, and often, we, we, we instead of realizing a model doesn't work and just throwing it out, we tweak it and we adjust yes. it and we add a little benefit. And it's still, it's like, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. It's mm-hmm. still a pig. Yeah. It's still a pig, but now we made it look a little bit right. cuter. Incremental small changes. There's a fear of, of, of readjusting too much, right? And that's funny. Right. In with, the theater, we're so creative, and yet we're so scared to do that with that structure. Right, um, which is why we still struggle with getting more people of color yeah. in the theater because well, we are not willing to throw away old models. Absolutely. And then, yeah, that's, that's so smart. That's absolutely right. So also, so now we have COVID happening. So twenty. let's talk about 2020. We've got this COVID pandemic and then we've got an, uh, a fantastic movement, uh, the Black Lives Movement that is, Black Lives Matter movement that is coming forth uh, because of a horrible tragedy. But uh, one of many tragedies that's been going on for a while. This is not something that just started you know, last month, but it's sort of gaining steam, right, nationally, finally. Uh, and and do, you, do you see a potential for change in the way theater operates because of both of these um, big shifting, tectonic shifts that are happening in our country and in our world, really? It, it, it has to change. I mean, I think 2020 is probably one of the best, best things to happen to America, Talk, talk more about American that. Yeah, yeah, talk more about that. I think that I agree. But tell me, how well, do you see I, that breaking open in terms of 
I mean, tragedy and trauma, you have to consider those. If you can have a positive outlook on life, you have mm-hmm. to consider those, even despite the all the traumatic things that have happened. Sure. But if you can somehow embrace the idea that trauma and tragedies are are things to learn from and mm. things to grow from, yeah. then what's happening now should should change America and change American theater. If we return to the way things were, we have failed. Yes. We have absolutely failed. Absolutely. Yeah. And so and and so I, I think, you know, and, and and certainly the Black Lives Matter movement is 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 so visceral and so um elevated because we were all at home mm-hmm. um, stuck at home yeah. um and so and, and you know I, you know my friend the other day said it's like must see tv like it just was the thing to do so mm-hmm. everyone ran out to the streets to protest and to riot and protesting and rioting is not sustainable no it's not sustainable and the thing i know about white people is that their guilt only lasts for a little while mm-hmm. And so, um, so, so, so here we are in a place where people are actually looking at policies and looking at change and, and tearing down um, statues. And, and, and I just hope we can sustain it. I don't know if the protesting and the rioting and the tearing down of statues is, 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 is possible to sustain for another few months. I know I have four or five statues I can rip down, but I'm talking, <laughs> I will be tired after well, that. Well, after a while, yeah, um, it does, it's exhausting. Right, so it's exhausting those two, yeah. Those two things together that have put us in crisis are an opportunity for us to go back and say, let's fix what's broken. Mm. Let's fix what's broken. Yeah. Uh, and, and if there's any theater company out there that is not elevating race equity to the top of its action items, yes. in addition to surviving COVID, mm. you're going to fail when you get back. You're really going to have a hard time mm. making it work because it's not going to work. So everyone that's thinking about going back to the way it was, I promise you, you're making a big mistake. Yeah, I mean, things have to change. You're right. And there's really no, we can't go back to before. But, um, you know, there, you're one of a small group of African-American men that are leading prominent regional theaters now in the U.S. There are some more. I mean, it's there's been some positive change, I will say. I have to give some credit. over the Not enough, but over the last couple of years, I've noticed a shift in the regional theaters. There have been some uh, people of color starting to be able to take um, some leadership roles so that they can start making decisions that include everyone. Um, Do you feel, I mean, and and, you know, I know that that you yourself, I mean, do you feel a special responsibility as, uh, and I know that race is not the only lens that you look at things through. I know that because I've known you for a while. But what, do you feel a certain responsibility as an African-American man leading this prominent regional theater in the Northeast? Oh yeah, it's a tremendous amount of stress. Even when I was in DC, the stress of like being mm-hmm. what the Washington Post called the only black leader, um, arts uh, theater leader in DC, yeah. that pressure um, yeah. and coming to Boston, coming to Boston when most of the publications announced my arrival as a diversity hire, uh, um, so like, like what that did to me emotionally, sure. um, yeah, it's a huge, huge amount of pressure. And I, and the, it, what I, so I'm so happy also there's leadership shift in that there are probably 
20 to 30 new hires in leadership capacity in this country. Yes. Uh, I think what a lot of companies didn't do was to set the leaders up to succeed by getting them executive coaches, affinity groups, mm-hmm. by helping with whatever skills gap they may have because they haven't had opportunities to lead before. Sure. Or they did, or they, you know what I mean? So yeah, I think yeah. there's still a lot of work to do because yeah. I will tell you as a, as, as a black, the black person running, in, when everyone else in my company is, is white, uh, outside of a couple, mm-hmm. it, the things that come up in those rooms is is is, is stuff that 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 white people don't understand because they they haven't had to deal with that. Right. And I just a few minutes ago on my last call, I was saying that, uh, like again, we, what we do is we we slightly shift things that aren't working as opposed to throwing them out. Mm-hmm. So like policies in general, policies should exist on a bell curve, right? Yeah. Where most, most of the people are being taken care of that are in the middle of the bell curve, understanding that on the ends of the bell curve, someone's going to get screwed. Right. Mm. But ideally you're taking care of most of the people. Yeah. There is no way that you can create a policy that takes care of a diverse group of people. If everyone that's making that policy is white. Yeah, the and so are that, that's why legislation has to um, should be more diverse. That's why your boards have to be more diverse because, mm-hmm. and and not and sometimes, absolutely sometimes, it's race based where people are making decisions to take care of rich white people. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes, boards that are well intentioned that want to do the right kind of work and diverse work, they don't have a lens that is diverse enough to create policies mm-hmm. that help them look at it from a from a racial lens. And so they do harm just by excluding people from the room, even though their intentions are good. Right. And we were talking, I was talking to some other people that I've talked to about this, this topic, because it comes up a lot. And I think it's good that it comes up. Um, how, how does one do diversity properly? Right. And I think a lot of um, yeah. white people, uh, myself included, perhaps in the past thought, well, they're doing an August Wilson play, so isn't that diverse? Or they're doing... That's you know, tokenism. Right, that's tokenism. You're doing one play in your season. Well, black people should be happy. I mean, there's that kind of... you know, right. the, no, White people don't say that out loud, but that's what they're thinking, I think. I mean, I want to speak for all white people. But I think there's a little bit of that going on, especially in leadership. They go, well, we're diverse. We, we don't just do plays about white people. And I'm like, that's not what it's about. It's about are you creating a nurturing environment? And when Carolyn and Griffin and I were talking about, you know, are you creating a, a space where African American artists or any artist that isn't white of color is, is able to come in and nurture and create a new work um, uh, or give them space and money and ability to, to time to be able to create their own stories. Rather, and, and also now what you're saying is the flip side of it on the other side of the table is do you have people in the room? Do you have writers? Do you have um, business people? Do you have whoever on the other side making choices on the board who are also from a diverse background? That's how you create the diversity, right? You're saying it starts... Yeah, with- well, it's, 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 you know, I... There are, so the one metaphor that pops in my head is the idea, the idea of flocking. When, when geese flock together, if one goose is not well, then a small, a small posse of the flock will go and fly with that goose who's not well. And if they have to stop and rest, they will stay with that goose and then rejoin the flock later. The idea that you're taking care of the people who need to be taken care of the most is something that humans do not, as a whole, do not do. So that's one sort of concept. The other concept about race equity is that it is major surgery to solve this problem. Mm. It is major surgery. And so many people go into 
major surgery without educating themselves. So the first thing that white people have to do, and this is why we're saying it's not our responsibility to tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. The first thing you have to do is educate yourself. Mm -hmm. There are so many free resources, books, YouTube clips, podcasts. um, The list is endless. Just spend an hour a day or a half hour a day just reading and, and absorbing how racism works and how the structures work and that because so many of us that haven't done this work they relegate racism and racist to people that say bad things or people that don't like brown people or people that do bad things as opposed to if we understand that racism is a system and an institution right yeah if we understand that then anyone that benefits from the system yeah. theoretically is a racist, right? Well, yeah. Which would, which, and this may turn off all your listeners, but that, that would <laughs> no, mean no, that. No, no, no. I want you to be open and it. I'm, I'm, I, well, it doesn't this, turn me off. It's good. Well, this would mean that every white person in this country literally is a racist because every well, white person in this country benefits from the system. And a lot of people say, I'm not a racist because I like brown people. However, the person that doesn't like brown people is bad. However, you as a white person still get the same benefits right. as the person that doesn't like brown Unless people. Unless you're so, actively fighting for and being an ally and, 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 and learning and growing and, and, and supporting and working with uh, people of color. You can't just sit back exactly. and say, oh, you well, I, I, don't, I don't hate people of color, so I'm not a racist. No, you're, you're part of that system. So you've got to yeah, do everything you can every day to break out of that system and to reshape right. the system. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And those people that, that, that do not actively fight it, that are complicit or say, I don't know where, where to start, the complacency, the complacency of not doing anything is just as bad as the person that hates brown people. Yeah. It's because a, I it's strongly more believe... It's more pervasive and it's harder to identify. Exactly. And I strongly believe that the people that made the rules have the power to change the rules. Mm. If you think about it, women's right to vote was not made by women. That was white men that chose to give up Mm. power. Yeah. Uh, The Jackie Robinson did not break the color barrier. He was the first black person allowed by white men to play in the major So to end racism, white people have to be willing to give up power. And that will be, honestly, Stephen, like like the seven stages of grief, which we're seeing now all over TV. We're seeing people go through the seven stages of grief. I think we're in anger right now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anger is one of those that you're seeing all over the place with with a lot of people, um, white people getting angry and showing off their guns and all that stuff. But listen, um, I, I have to, we have to wrap up, but I just wanted to say that I think that it's really amazing how you've been able to transition from DC into New England and take on the mantle of this new uh, um, challenge for you, a, a new rep. And I'm, I, I wish you all the best in it because I think that um, you'll be able to crack that open and start something new. And I think COVID and Black Lives Matter are two things that are going to actually help our communities start to think in new ways and the theater start to think in new ways. We didn't get a chance to talk about all the things you're probably doing um, online that I know you're working on. Um, uh, what is your most passionate thing that you're doing right now online that's theater related uh, that you're most passionate about quickly so that we can... I, two, yeah, two, 2 p.m. on Sundays, I'm hosting conversations with arts leaders in Boston. The next few weeks, we're going to center these around black arts voices. Wow. Um, and then we're just in a, in a phase of, of design thinking what we want our digital work to look like. 
Um, New England has been great outside of outside of winter starting in August and ending in May and some the weird, weird, weird turkey epidemic that's happening in Cambridge right now. Um, but, I, but I'm excited. I'm excited about being here. Turkey epidemic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For some reason, I think maybe because people are quarantined, the turkeys are coming out of hiding. So I live in Cam- oh, Cambridge. Oh, that's right. Okay, now I know what you're talking about. Yes, that there's turkeys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I live in Cambridge. And yes. I'm literally like four blocks from Harvard Square. Wow. And, and we see turkeys every day. So My friend, I have a good friend, Kate Penner, who's a dancer and also teaches at Harvard, uh, who is, who's told me about the turkey <laughs> So it's I should bizarre. connect the two of you because I think you'd like yeah, that. Yeah, please. I please love. do that. But um, wonderful. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining. We didn't have time to talk about everything that I wanted to talk to you about. We'll have to do a part two. Uh, but um, I hope, I wish you all the best in, in over there in New England and keep keep all the fires burning there and keep everything happening at, at New Rep and keep us, keep me and, and all of us informed on what you're working on. If people want to find you online, are you doing a lot on social media now? Or yeah, yeah they- probably um, Twitter might be the, I'm mean, not Twitter, um, uh, uh, Instagram might be the best. But my, you can follow me on Facebook, but I get to my, my friend limit um, sure. Really fast, of course, and a lot <laughs> so, of people. So Instagram, and it's just Michael J. Bobbitt. Michael James, Michael James Bobbitt. Ah, Michael. J- I was going to ask what the J stand for. I never knew. Now James, Michael James Bobbitt. So Michael James Bobbitt on Instagram. So if they want to follow you and see what you're doing and keep keep track of and keep abreast of the latest with new rep and with you, they can go there. So. Any last words, anything you wanted to say, Michael, before before we wrap up? Yeah, no, it's great. it's great to catch up with you. And thanks so much for doing this and giving me a platform to say a bunch of things. And, and I think theater can change the world. So thank you so much, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.